How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 12? Daniel 12. Now, as we come to Daniel 12, we come to the conclusion of the fourth and final vision that God gave to Daniel, which started in chapter 10 and runs into chapter 12. As we saw last week, chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, contains 135 prophecies that have already come to pass, starting with verse 36 of Daniel 11 and running through verse 3 of chapter 12. These verses contain prophecies that are yet future, focusing on the final world empire, the kingdom of Antichrist, before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, chapter 11, which we studied last time, ends with these words, verse 45. And he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. This prophesies the end of the Antichrist as he is judged when Jesus returns, uh, at the end of the tribulation period, we read this last time, but let me read the Revelation 19, verse 20 again. Then the beast, this is the Lord Jesus' return now. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, that's the end of the tribulation period. The Lord has come back. He deals with the false prophet and the Antichrist, casts him into hell, basically, lake of fire. But now, Gabriel, who is giving Daniel these prophecies in chapters 10 through 12, goes back to the middle. This is a common thing in Hebrew literature, where the writer will kind of give you an overview and then go back and zero in on something he wants to amplify or get into greater detail about. We see this in the book of Genesis, how in chapter one you have an overview of creation. Then starting in chapter two, Moses, the writer of the Holy Spirit, goes back and focuses on day six because that's when man was made. And man, of course, is central to the whole story of redemption. So this is what is kind of going on here. Gabriel kind of gives Daniel uh, an overview of history from the Persian Empire all the way through Antichrist's kingdom. But now he goes back to the middle of the tribulation period to talk about something that happens which greatly affects or is going to happen, uh, is going to happen which greatly affects the Jewish people. Daniel 12, verse 1. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Let me stop here. Now, this dovetails with Revelation 12. So keep your finger here. Go to Revelation 12. We'll be bouncing back and forth a little bit. Because this Daniel 12, 1 corresponds with Revelation 12, uh, around verse 7, I think. But we have to kind of work our way up to that. Let me just give you a quick uh, little study in Revelation 12, starting with verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cries out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is this woman? Well, some Bible commentators say she's the church. If she's the church, she's in trouble because she's pregnant. And the church is the virgin bride of Christ. 
No, this is not the church. It's Israel. It's Israel. And the language is indicative of Genesis 37 verses 9 to 11, where Joseph has a couple of dreams, but one in particular of the sun, the moon, and uh, 11 stars. And when the interpretation comes, we realize that uh, the sun was Jacob, the moon was Rachel, and the uh, stars were the sons of Jacob. The, the idea is that they um, symbolically represented Israel. Israel, okay? Uh, the stars here in this uh, woman's head, this garland on her head of 12 stars, that relates to the 12 sons of Jacob, or in other words, the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, we believe this is a uh, just a, um, a symbolic of, of Israel, okay? Verse 3, Revelation 12, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. Now, I am not going to develop all this because you can go back and listen to the study we did a few years ago. But uh, we do know this fiery red dragon is Satan. How do we know that? Because verse 9 tells us it's Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. These stars, guys, are angels. The angels are depicted symbolically as stars elsewhere in Scripture, as in Revelation 9, verse 1, and Job 38, verse 7. Now, it is from this verse that we understand that a third of the angels in heaven followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. You can read about this, or Lucifer's rebellion, in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. But, of course, these angels who followed Lucifer all became fallen angels. Uh, latter part of Revelation 12, verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, guys, at least 4,000 years has passed between the first and second sentences of Revelation 12, verse 4. The first one is Lucifer leading a revolt in heaven. That was before Adam and Eve were created. And then, of course, it scopes out then 4,000 years uh, to when Christ was born. So just to let you know, this is common in prophecy where, you know, you have one statement and it telescopes into the future. Just so you understand what's going on. We know this, this child is Messiah, it's Jesus Christ. We know that uh, for sure from verse 5, Revelation 12. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many passages we could look at to confirm that, not the least of which is Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you... The Father speaking to the Son, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pe to pieces like a potter's vessel, speaking of Messiah's rule on the earth. In Revelation 19, verse 15, out of his mouth, the mouth of the Lord Jesus, goes a sharp sword, uh, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So the Lord Jesus Christ is in view. Revelation 12, verse 4 again. His tail, Lucifer, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, I believe, guys, in the very narrow sense, this is a reference to Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, trying to kill the baby Jesus when the wise men came to him and announced that they had seen the star of the coming king, 
that he had been born in Bethlehem. And Herod was furious uh, and was absolutely beside himself with anger uh, because someone had come king of the Jews when he was king of the Jews, although he wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. Okay, Esau and Jacob were brothers, but uh, you know the Edomites were not Jews, and so you, there was a really a usurper on the throne at that time. But uh, he was so upset, Herod was, at the news that he eventually, you, you remember, uh, he eventually gave the order that his soldiers were to go to Bethlehem and kill all the male children two years old and under in an attempt to destroy this king. Of course, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, take the child and escape to Egypt until Herod dies, and I'll tell you when so you can come back, and that's what happened. So that's the narrow interpretation. Herod the Great trying to wipe out the Messiah when he was born. However, there is a much broader application. I'm digressing a little bit, but you have to understand the context of Revelation 12 and then Daniel 12. There's a much broader application that's in view here than simply what Herod tried to do. Revelation chapter 12 sheds, I think, a whole new light on anti-Semitism. If the promise of God's redemption depended upon the existence and the perpetuation of a nation, if Satan could destroy that nation, he could defeat the plans of God, thwart the purposes of God, and therefore God could not offer the human race redemption. When you understand that, the whole Bible takes on new insight. Anti-Semitism is a demonic thing. It's not rational. Why would the world, well, so many in the world, be so obsessed with wiping out a country the size of New Jersey? I mean, why are the Jews the focus of so much hatred around the world? What have these people ever done to anyone? It's a, don't try to figure it out. It's a demonic hatred. It's a demonic hatred. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because in Genesis 3.15, remember when God was pronouncing the curse, he said, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent now. And between your seed and her seed, uh, he shall bruise, excuse me, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Well, the idea is that God was saying that, Lucifer, you took the form of a serpent, you beguiled Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit, and mankind has fallen. But I am going to send a redeemer. He is going to be through the seed of the woman. First glimpse at the virgin birth. Women don't have the seed, obviously. The men do. So this was a first glimpse at the virgin birth, right? That the Messiah was going to come uh, through a, a virgin, be born of a virgin. Well, when Satan heard that God was going to send a Messiah, a deliverer who would crush the serpent's head, destroy his authority over the earth, because he was now in charge. He was the world's new owner, the God of this world. He was a usurper, though. He had no right, legally. Uh, to rule over the earth. But God says, I'm going to send someone eventually, a Messiah, who is going to crush your head, destroy your authority, and he will rule. He will take back what rightfully belongs to God. Well, when Satan heard that, I'm sure he was thinking, that ain't happening, man. So Lucifer thought Abel was the one who was going to be the Messiah. And so he worked in the heart of Cain to kill his brother. Of course, God raised up another son, Seth, the messianic line would have would come through and then of course you had uh, abraham uh, how god called uh, abram out of the earth of the chaldees and had him separate himself t- uh, to become a brand new nation 
And so now Satan realized, well, it was, it's through Abraham that Messiah is going to come. But Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But God says, it's in Isaac your seed will be called. And then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God says, it's through Jacob Messiah will come. And Jacob had 12 sons. And God said, through Judah, the fourth son, Messiah would come. And then later on to the family of David, who was a member of the tribe of Judah. And then Solomon. And the more God focused his prophecies about where the Messiah would be born from what family, the devil was able to focus his attacks. This, this is incredible to think about because, let me just say this, God is promising that someday he would send, as I said, a Messiah, a Savior, who would crush the serpent's head, destroy his authority. And you know what? As God declared war on Satan, Satan declared war on the purposes of God. And you had, starting in the Garden of Eden, a war to end all wars that's still going on today in the invisible realm. If you're really interested in this, the classic by Donald Gray Barnhouse, The Invisible War. Just amazing. It'll, it'll open your eyes. If you haven't already come to terms with this kind of thinking, it will open your eyes to what's going on in the Bible in a way that you never thought possible. Because now you see the devil's attacks all the way through, trying to kill the Messiah or keep him from being born. And we just see the attacks all the way through God. As Satan tries to wipe out the people of God in many different ways, starting with, uh, you know, starting with uh, Pharaoh, who wanted the midwives to drown the Hebrew um, male children. Uh, you know, Haman, who tried to get a, the king to sign a decree to, on a certain date, all the Jews in his kingdom would be killed. Uh, Herod, who gave the order to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. It's amazing when you think of it that way, the warfare. But anyways, in Revelation 12, verse 5, we read, she, Israel, bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, most commentators see in this a reference to the ascension of Jesus 40 days after his resurrection, where he then sat down at the Father's right hand on his throne. We know that in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus led his disciples to the Mount of Olives, and he ascended right in front of them up into the clouds. And Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us that he then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation 12, verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, once again, there is a time gap of 2,000 years between Revelation 12, verse 5, and Revelation 12, verse 6 between the birth of Christ and then um, when the Antichrist begins to persecute the Jews. It's about a 2,000-year gap there. But uh, as we said last week, guys, when Antichrist enters the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demands to be worshipped, the Great Tribulation, which is really the last part of the seven years, uh, the whole thing is called the Tribulation period, seven-year period of time. The last three and a half years, or 1,260 days, is called the Great Tribulation. Jesus likened it to a woman in hard labor. Remember Matthew uh, 24? Uh, but as you move past the midpoint into the last half of the seven-year tribulation period, the earth moves into hard labor, you might say, as God is now pouring his judgments out one after another, very intense, until finally the Lord Jesus comes, the kingdom is birthed, and there is peace on earth. 
Jesus spoke of this, that when the Antichrist enters the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, sets up his image and demands to be worshipped as God. Jesus said at that point, Matthew 24, the, the uh, great tribulation period will begin. And, uh, and at that time, 1260 days of unparalleled hostility and persecution will be unleashed against the Jewish people by the Antichrist, his followers, all controlled by the devil. And that's why Jesus told the Jews to flee those who would see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist image, which he sets up in the Holy of Holies, Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see that, don't even go back into your houses to get your clothes. Run. Go right down into the wilderness. Run into the wilderness. Now, we have talked about this numerous times throughout the course of our study in Daniel. But if you turn back to chapter 11 for a second... And it talks, it's talking, verses 40 and 41, which I won't read the whole thing, but it's talking about the Antichrist and his campaign and his hatred for the Jewish people. It says in verse 41, he shall enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and uh, many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. And that, folks, is modern-day Jordan, that territory. In fact, Jordan, the capital is Amman. Same place. In Isaiah 16, you might want to turn to this one. Isaiah 16, starting with verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, where it shall be as a wandering bird overthrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. What's going on is that God is saying here through the prophet, there's coming a time when a spoiler, we know him as the Antichrist, is going to pursue the people of God. And they're going to flee down to the area that we call today Jordan. And they're going to take refuge in what was biblical Moab. And God is saying, don't turn them away. You people down there, you give them shelter. You give them shelter, protection. Your margin might say Selah. Remember, see, it says in verse uh, 1, uh, from Selah to the wilderness. Your margin of your Bible might say Selah means rock or Petra. Many commentators believe this place in the wilderness is the rock city of Petra, southeast of the Dead Sea, which we have spoken about before. And as we have said, Petra is truly an amazing city located in Moab, or modern-day Jordan. Uh, this city, carved out of stone, has stood for centuries, preserved largely because the only entrance uh, to the city is through a canyon, and the canyon is at most 12 feet wide. Uh, that's why the city was very easy to defend, because you you know you couldn't get a whole army right. They had, they had to come you know um, almost single file, and it was easy to defend the city, and it's been there for centuries. Okay, now you say, well, do the Jews know of these prophecies and do they take them seriously about the Antichrist coming and then them fleeing down to uh, the rock city of Petra? Well. I was in Israel a few years ago, and uh, one of our Calvary pastors was talking about this, and he said that a Jordanian guide told him 
that from January through June of each year, listen, a thousand Jews a day come down to the rock city of Petra. What do you think they're doing? Wondering where it is and how I'm going to live here once I run from the, you know, whatever it might be. You know, uh, they don't call him the Antichrist, but they know that one is coming as a, uh, as a, as a one who will persecute them powerfully. And uh, I have been told, I haven't been able to confirm it, that some Christian businessmen have stocked the place with food and evangelistic tracts written in Hebrew, some Hebrew New Testaments and so on. So, uh, you know, God's taking care of them already. Uh, Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Listen, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Now keep your finger there. Turn to Matthew 24. I'm just trying to cross-reference some of these things with other passages, give you a flavor of what's happening here. But at that time, there's going to be a time of trouble for Israel that has never been, no nation has ever been persecuted like this. In Matthew 24, verse 21 Jesus said, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Turn over to Jeremiah 30. This is an Old Testament reference of this very thing. Jeremiah 30, starting with verse 4. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? And all faces turned pale. Alas, for that day is great. It's a day of great tribulation so that none is like it, and it is the time, listen, of Jacob's trouble. But he, Jacob, or Israel, shall be saved out of it. The Old Testament calls the Great Tribulation period the time of Jacob's trouble, because the Antichrist is going to focus his attention on persecuting the Jewish people. Let me just say this. Many have trouble reconciling this. What? Well, that the second half of the tribulation period, known as Great Tribulation, uh, which here in Revelation 12, verse 6, uh, is said to be 1260 days long. Uh, they have trouble reconciling that with the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 22, where Jesus said, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. However, the Greek in Matthew 24, verse 22, doesn't indicate that those days will be cut short in the sense that they will be less than 1,260 days. In the Greek, what Jesus is saying is that unless this period of, period of horrific judgment, warfare, cataclysmic upheaval known as the Great Tribulation period, unless that time was shortened, in other words, not allowed to go on indefinitely, month after month, year after year, if God didn't limit it in his mercy to only 1,260 days, then there would be no one left on the earth after a given time, all right? 
So that's a, you know, those days are shortened in the sense that God won't let them go past 1260 days or three and a half years. Because if he did, no one would make it. It's going to be a pretty horrific period of time. Uh, back to Revelation 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Ah, here's what we wanted to get to. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now you go back to Daniel 12, verse 1. Let me read to you again what it says. See, we know Revelation 12, verse 7 is right in the middle of the, of the tribulation period. Again, at that time, which would be the middle of the tribulation period, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, the fact that Michael led God's angels to victory, as we're told in uh, Daniel 12, uh, is it's significant because Michael is identified with the nation of Israel. Michael is like the guardian angel of Israel. And at one point, Michael stands up to fight for Israel because the Antichrist, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, right? But, but Michael stands up and he's a pretty tough guy, okay? I mean, he's one of the top guys in God's army. In fact, Ark, the archangel, Ark means ruler. He's a ruling angel. He's, a, he's in charge of the other ones for the most part. The name Michael means who is like God, who is like God. Now, he's a faithful angel, right? And, you know, you, you contrast him, Michael, who is like Jehovah or Yahweh, with Lucifer, who said five times, I will be like the Most High, I will rule, I will do. Pride of Lucifer, you see the difference. But in Revelation 12, again, verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. We should notice, guys, that this is truly a battle between equals. Equals. There's a lot of people that think that Satan is the counterpart of God. God has no counterpart. There, no one is equal to God, Okay. People think, well, you know, it's, it's God and the devil locked in this war with each other. That's No, that's that's not true, okay? Uh, Lucifer was a created being. He's allowed to continue because God is allowing him to give us a choice because we're free moral agents. You can't have a free will if you don't have a choice. So God lets Satan exist to give us a choice. But he is not equal with God. You know who is probably equal with, with Lucifer? Michael the archangel. There probably are true counterparts of each other. Michael leading the faithful angels uh, in war against Lucifer, who is a fallen angel leading the fallen angels against the purposes of God. And you guys know this. Many people think that Satan is the ruler of hell. But the Bible says or tells us that right now, uh, Satan is the God of this world who has access to heaven uh, anytime he wants. Book of Job tells us this in chapter 1. But Lucifer presents himself. He has, to, he has to report to God, okay? Uh, he's not in control. He has to get his, he, he can't do anything to us unless he gets permission. Well, why would God give him permission to get me? Well, to teach us things, okay, to toughen us up and teach us some lessons and things. But um, 
We have to understand that right now the devil has access to heaven where the Bible says he constantly appears before the Father accusing us. You know, your, your kid, you know, Lord, your kid, uh, the one that, you know, you love and says they, he loves you. And, and look at how he's messing up. You know, of course, Satan tempts us and we fall. He runs to the Father and accuses us, you know. Well, we have an advocate, though. Okay, Satan is a prosecuting attorney. In fact, the language of that is used in the Bible. Jesus is our defender. He is a, an attorney who defends us. And every time Satan accuses us the Lord to the Father, the Lord Jesus steps up and says, Father, don't even listen to that. I've already paid for those sins. They're under my blood. Don't even consider it. And the Father says, case dismissed, get out of here. And so, you know. But um, turn back to Revelation 12. Just finish up in Revelation. I want you to see the, how it parallels. But Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. Michael and his angels were victorious. They defeat the dragon, Satan. Uh, and uh, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. The devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. He knows his time is very short by this point. Now, guys, hear me out. We covered some of this last week. This, I believe, coincides with the devil entering into the Antichrist to resurrect him, quote-unquote, after someone tries to assassinate the Antichrist. We talked about this last week. At one point during his reign, not everyone's going to love this guy, the Antichrist. At one point, somebody tries to assassinate him. It sounds like from the language we looked at, a gunshot wound to the left side of his head, leaving his right side paralyzed, his eye, uh, right eye blind, his right side paralyzed. He's going to look dead. I don't believe he is going to be dead. Satan doesn't have the power of life and death. But it's going to be a convincing counterfeit. He's going to look dead. And when Satan is thrown out of heaven, I believe at that point he enters into and possesses the Antichrist, resurrects him, which he wasn't really dead, but the world is going to think he is. And this is going to take place at the midpoint of the tribulation period. At that point, the Antichrist, now possessed by the devil, and the devil is full of wrath, great wrath. Why? Because he's been kicked out of heaven. He comes down to the earth. He can't get at God, right? I mean, you, he can't touch God. He can't vent his fury at God. So what does he do? He takes his fury out on the people God loves, the Jews. And so filled with the devil, and the devil filled with a hatred for Israel because they were the instrument God used to bring Messiah into the world, the one who was going to crush the serpent's head, which he knows is coming pretty quick now. At this point, as we said last time, the Antichrist now, possessed by the devil, becomes a military dictator. Before this, he's more of a politician, working with people and shaking hands and kissing babies, that kind of thing, you know. But now he becomes a military dictator, a bloodthirsty man, madman, again, turning his full fury primarily against the Jewish people. 
And his first order of business will be to kill the two witnesses. Revelation 11, 7. Again, we talked about that last time. After the Antichrist kills the two witnesses, he will then go into the temple in Jerusalem where he breaks his covenant with Israel. Remember the covenant we studied in Daniel 9, verse 27? He breaks the covenant he made with Israel, stops the sacrifices and offerings to the God of Israel, places an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, and demands to be worshipped as God. And again, this is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. He said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, listen, flee to the mountains. Again, Petra, just as the Bible said the Jews were going to do. Daniel 12, verse 1, again, spending our whole night on verse 1. The, uh, the latter part, okay, we're getting somewhere. Second part of verse 1, we've already read it, but let me read again. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Listen, and at that time your people shall be delivered. The Jewish people, everyone who was found written in the book. This would be the book of life which contains the names of all true believers, okay? Again, Matthew 24, verses 9 and 13 tell us, Then they will deliver you up, Jesus said, to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Don't let that throw you. Matthew 24, verse 13, He who endures to the end. End of what? End of the tribulation period. End of the tribulation period, whoever makes it, able to hide out and whatever they have to do in Petra, whatever, those Jews who make it to the end of the tribulation period will be saved. Don't think of heaven's salvation. Think of being saved from the Antichrist rampage against the Jewish people. How will they be saved? Because Messiah will come back and deliver them. Deliver them. Daniel 12.2. We're making ground now. Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, guys, this isn't talking about the rapture, which is the resurrection of those who sleep in Christ, the church. That happens before the tribulation period starts. That's what I believe. I'm a pre-tribber, okay? I believe the rapture will take place before the tribulation period starts. The tribulation period officially begins when Israel signs a peace treaty with the Antichrist. Daniel 9.27, we talked about that, right? So this isn't talking about the rapture, which happens before the Antichrist shows up on the scene. This event we read about in Daniel 12.2 happens at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus returns to establish his millennial kingdom. The focus of this resurrection, guys, will be believing Jews, resurrecting believing Jews, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and etc. In Daniel 12, verse 2, it sounds like this resurrection will include both believing and unbelieving Jews who will all resurrect simultaneously in one great all-encompassing resurrection. Sounds that way if you read Daniel 12, 2. However, the book of Revelation tells us that, that these two resurrections will be separated by at least a thousand years. Turn to Revelation 20. I'm hoping I'm not losing you. Revelation 20. 
Daniel 12, 2 sounds like one big resurrection. Actually, some people actually teach that uh, because of verses like Daniel 12, 2. But if we go to Revelation 20, we realize that the resurrection of the just Israel and the resurrection of the, of the unjust Israel, apostate Jews, and every other unbeliever is separated by at least a thousand years. Revelation 20, starting with verse 4, John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the work of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You, get the, you understand? They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, which meant they had to be resurrected before the millennial kingdom started, is the idea. These are the righteous Jews that, you know, when Jesus... I'll talk about that more in a moment, okay? Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished, until the millennial kingdom was over. This is the first resurrection. What? The one that goes back to Jews being resurrected before the millennial kingdom is established, okay? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death, the lake of fire or hell, has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now we've covered this before, but since John brings it up in Revelation 20, let me just say it quickly. The term first resurrection is a category. It's a category, not, it's not referring to a single event. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the first resurrection. Let me read it to you. But each one in his own order, talking about resurrection. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Well, there's two comings of Christ after the first time he came. Comings that are yet future are his coming for his church at the rapture. And then his coming back with his church to establish his kingdom, the second coming. Paul says, but each of these groups, that's the idea, the word for order in verse 23, but each one, each group will be resurrected in his own order. The Greek word for order there is tagma, which means an order of succession. In other words, guys, the first resurrection is a category containing these people or groups. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus. He's the first fruits, Paul said. He resurrected in AD 32, right? April of AD 32. Then we scope out a couple of thousand years to the next group that is resurrected. That's part of the, uh, the first resurrection. And that's the, the church. And we will be resurrected when the rapture happens. If, if we're still alive, we get caught up to meet the Lord in the air alive as we get our new glorified bodies on the way up. Uh, but all the people who have died as believers in the church age, well, they'll be resurrected at this time, at the time of the rapture. Then you have the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints. They'll be resurrected when Jesus Christ returns. Before he establishes his millennial kingdom, he is going to resurrect all the Old Testament saints. Because the millennial kingdom was a promise he gave to them primarily. And uh, we were grafted in, of course, as the church. If they're going to enjoy the millennial kingdom, which is what they were waiting for for centuries, then he's got to resurrect those who are dead. 
And then there's one more resurrection, the resurrection of the tribulation saints. Those people that were martyred during the tribulation period, they're going to be resurrected when Jesus returns at his second coming. So tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, are both resurrected when Jesus returns at his second coming before the millennial kingdom is established. Guys, the only resurrection remaining will be that of the unrighteous, who will be raised to condemnation and eternal punishment at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign. Again, Revelation 20, verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now, once again, guys, every believer, whether they uh, are a member of the church and listen, the church is a group of people that were saved during the church age, which was from Pentecost to the rapture. So everyone's saved from Pentecost, Acts 2, to the rapture. It's all the church age. We are all members of the church, okay? Whether you're talking about the church, talking about Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and Jesus himself all belong to the category of the first resurrection. You read that and go, well, first means there must be a second, third, fourth. Well, kind of, but... It's a category, okay? A category. Now, again, this category began with Christ's resurrection, and it's going to culminate with his second coming when he resurrects Jews and tribulation saints. This first resurrection category covers about roughly 2,000 years. Now, getting back to Daniel 12. Now, let's just finish with verse 3 tonight. We'll finish the book next time. But getting back to Daniel 12, are we supposed to take the first part of verse 3 literally? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. The word firmament means expanse in the Hebrew, expanse. In this context, it means the expanse of the universe or more specifically, the new heavens, the new heavens. See, the Bible teaches that because the original creation, Genesis chapter 1, was corrupted by sin, that, listen, after the last sinner is judged at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the Lord is going to destroy this present physical universe, 2 Peter 3, 10. He's going to create a new universe, which is pure and undefiled by sin. Let's turn to these together. I'll read you three. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Where God says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The first creation was corrupted. So God's going to recreate the universe and the earth, make a new city called New Jerusalem, where the redeemed will live, uh, a creation that has not been uh, tainted by the fall, not been corrupted by sin in any way, pure, pristine, and will last forever. And then Revelation 21, verse 1, John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. That's interesting. Don't have time to get into it. Go online and listen to that last part. In our Revelation study, something about the sea, okay, that is somehow associated with the devil in some respects. Um, where the new creation, the sea is not there anymore. All right, get the study. 
But in this new universe, guys, the Bible says there will, there will no longer be a need for the sun, the moon, the stars. Because first of all, the glory of the Lord is going to illuminate the earth and the new city of Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, the glory of God is going to illuminate it. His throne will be there. Furthermore, the saints of God will shine like the stars throughout the expanse of God's new heavens. And so uh, there won't be any need for any artificial light or, you know, artificial in the sense that, you know, it's not coming from God. But, um, you know, it's going to be a whole new creation. And God's glory will light the heavens and the universe. But verse 3 of Daniel 12, once again, so they'll shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. This is talking about those who um, have been rewarded for their faithful service to Jesus during their time on the earth. We know 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says that Paul said, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now God has given us a little preview through the Spirit who lives inside of us, but even we can't comprehend. I mean, we have a little taste of what heaven is like, you know, the love, the joy, the peace of fellowshipping with Him, fellowshipping with other Christians, but that's just a little puzzle. We're looking through like a, a very dirty window, okay, a, gla a dark glass. We make out shadows and things, but what, when God pulls the curtain away and we are standing in His presence, you can't even imagine the glory, right? But Jesus said that everything, again, talking about our rewards, Jesus said that everything we do for him, no matter how small, even if you give a cup of cold water to a disciple in my name, he said, you will by no means lose your reward. Other places say you'll be rewarded a hundredfold for every little act of kindness you did in um, supporting the work of God and helping those who were you know, involved in the work of God. Now listen, does Daniel 12, verse 3 mean only evangelists like D.L. Moody or Greg Laurie are going to be rewarded like this? It says, look, those who are wise turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever, which means those who are wise win souls, all right? Well, you say, I'm not an evangelist. You know, I've witnessed the people, but... Guys like D.L. Moody and Billy Graham and Greg Lloyd, these are evangelists. Are these the only guys? They're going to really shine like stars in the firmament forever? The only ones really rewarded like Daniel is saying here? Let me just say this to you. Winning souls is a group undertaking. Okay? Don't ever forget that. First of all, you have your prayer warriors who pray for years sometimes for people, Right? As God working through the prayer, softening that person's heart, opening their eyes, and so on. Then there are the financial givers that let the Billy Grahams and the Greg Lorries have these massive crusades. Then you have those who are hospitality people. You know, we see them in our own church. New people come in. I'm convinced many of them are unsaved. Our people swarm around them, welcome them warmly, show them, get them a cup of coffee, talk to them about the church. All that is being used to soften a person's heart that, hey, this is a really friendly group of people, prepares their heart to receive, you know, the word. And then, of course, you have those who are evangelists who speak the gospel. Not that all of us should be sharing the gospel, 
but God has called some to be professional evangelists. But listen, we're all going to share equally together in the rewards for each person one to Christ. I'll give you two more scriptures and we'll close. Turn to John 4. It's a group undertaking. We're all going to share equally in the rewards for each person one to Christ. John 4, starting with verse 36, where Jesus said, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. In other words, we all have a part in the work. 1 Corinthians 3 Starting with verse 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Again, we all have a reward in the work that in bringing souls to Christ. I like this. Each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. Think about this for a minute, okay? Who has worked harder? The person who prays for somebody for 18 years? Or the person who shares the gospel for 20 minutes? And the guy's so ripe, he just falls off the tree, okay? Who's worked harder? The person who's prayed for 18 years. So I would imagine they're going to be rewarded even more than the person who did share the gospel, that was faithful, and that person will be rewarded but you know what? Sometimes you think, well, I'm not actually bringing people to Christ. I'm just praying. Well, you know what? That's some of the toughest work in saving souls. You know, most of you have heard um, the name of Charles Finney. Finney was a great revivalist, okay? And he would go into areas and preach the gospel, and incredible things would happen. I mean, people 30 miles away would leave their, the bar and, and just be drawn to church somewhere. They had to be in God's presence. Well, he had an incredible ministry. Stuff happened during his ministry that was unusual, to say the least. Powerful, right? People would, again, fall on their knees. Bars would close. Towns would uh, dismiss the, the police department. They didn't need, there was no crime after Finney left town. What you may not realize is that before Finney ever came to a, a town to preach, he had a, an advanced team. One of the guys was Daniel Nash, and then Daniel would bring a guy or two with him. They would come into town six weeks, remember this one story, six weeks before Finney got to town, this one town, they rented a root cellar from a lady, and they just put a little table and some chairs there, and they would pray hours every day. And she said, I would hear them down there crying, burdened, you know, pouring their hearts out to God. They softened up. Prayer softened up the hearts of people that when Finney came, he just preached the gospel. Man, people were getting saved all over the place. Now you think Daniel Nash and those people that prayed for Finney for the ministry before he ever got to town, you think they're not going to be rewarded as much as he was or is going to be? We all have a part in the work. I was telling my, my brother who was, you know, saying, you know, gee, I don't know if I'm really doing anything for the Lord, you know, and I'm kind of getting up there in age now. I think I've blown it. No, no, you haven't blown it. First of all, stop equating quantity, okay, with effectiveness. I said, you've heard the name D.L. Moody, right? Well, sure, great evangelist. You ever heard the name Edward Kimball? No. Edward Kimball was the Sunday school teacher 
that grabbed Moody off the street as a kid, dragged him to a Sunday school class, made him come, and eventually was used by God to save Moody. Moody went out and saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people during the course of his ministry. Nobody knows of Edward Kimball, but God knows. Because of the faithfulness of a Sunday school teacher, one of the greatest evangelists that have ever lived was brought into the kingdom. Edward Kimball has got a lot of rewards coming because D.L. Moody was used so powerfully and Kimball was used to bring Moody to Christ. So guys, don't sit there and think, well, because I'm not a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie, what am I really doing for the Lord? I truly am convinced that the prayer warriors are going to be some of the most rewarded in heaven. And we can all pray, can't we? We're not all called to be evangelists in the sense that we're on stage and doing crusades, but we're all called to pray. And if we do that, we're going to be rewarded as, uh, as anyone who serves the Lord is going to be rewarded. So next time we will finish, get into some other things after that. So we'll uh, just uh, right now pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. And we ask you, Lord, to give us grace to be faithful, to realize, Lord, that the kingdom has many workers. We're all called to do something. And none of us can say, well, what I do is insignificant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, those who seem to have the more insignificant ministries, actually, they're the more vital ministries. So, Lord, we just pray you give us grace to get our eyes off of numbers and worldly success and just be faithful to do whatever it is you've called us to do. That we all might work together for the kingdom and uh, to see souls saved. Father, we ask that you would bless the last study in Daniel when we meet next time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.